Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Sermons, the words of the country's vast numbers of spiritual leaders, have played significant and even profound roles during times of national crisis. They have comforted those that mourn, given grief higher purposes, plumbed the depths of evil, suffering, and loss. They have offered hope, courage, and vision, and belief in the face of doubt and fear. They have also been key to how the nation defines itself as it reacts to these crises. To better comprehend what sermons at times of national crisis have meant for America, we have with us today Melissa Mathis, Professor of Government at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and author of When Sorrow Comes, The Power of Sermons from Pearl Harbor to Black Lives Matter. Dr. Mathis received a PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a Master of Divinity from Yale University. We guarantee that our time together today will help all of us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. And we trust that as a result, listeners will come to better understand how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom is to the United States and its future. And join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by donating at nmar.org forward slash contribute, where you can receive a signed copy of Dr. Mathis' book for a donation of $200 or more. Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. First, before we dive into your research, how did you become interested in this topic, the power and influence of crises sermons to Americans and American identity? What is that story? Um, for me, like I think many um, of you know our age, um, it really came out of 9-11. Um, I live in Connecticut. I had friends uh, and colleagues who were murdered that day in the Twin Towers. And so I was like many Americans, you know, um, going to church, reading sermons, trying to make sense of it and understand it. And then um, years later, I was in divinity school and was doing more sustained thinking in homiletics courses. And I was quite frankly disappointed in many of the sermons I read after 9-11. And that started me wondering like, well, have, you know, what have we done in crises? What else what, what did we do after Pearl Harbor? And that was the first paper I wrote on this project in Divinity School with um, Nora Tibbs Tudsdale. She really helped me to start to conceive of the project. And so I um, started writing about Pearl Harbor and found that the sermons there were so different than the ones given after 
I um I should also say that one of the of my closest friends when I was in divinity school was Robin Thurkoff and her husband had been killed in 9-11. And so my friendship with her also helped me to think about mourning. And um, she had come to divinity school as a way to mourn the loss of her husband. So. Wow, I had no idea. I'm sorry to hear about your loss. That definitely puts a, a different um, lens on this project, uh, obviously one that was important to you. Um, yeah profoundly important to, to the development of this this thought so thank you for taking that and, and pushing it into an important project for i think the country you write in the introduction melissa that sermons during a crisis actually tell us more about american political culture than religion which i found interesting uh, new i hadn't thought of that and that they offer civic education more than theological nuance can you tell us a little bit about what you mean here before we get into some of the meat of it later on. So um, I don't want to overstate, uh, maybe I did in the introduction. Um, I think that partially what happens in a crisis is um, two things. First, so many Americans, even if they're not religious, go to church. And that has remained true at least through 9-11, right? Um, and lots of accounts of people going into churches and ministers having this sense of, okay, something else is being asked of me here, right? Like my, the pews are, few, are full, what am I gonna say? Why are all these folks here? How do I think about this? And what I found doing this research in modernity, right? This, this period from Pearl Harbor, um, more or less to today is that um, denominational differences kind of fall away during a crisis, right? So, a Presbyterian sermon versus a Baptist sermon versus a, uh, you know, Episcopalian sermon. Yes, you know, maybe there's some differences, but that's not really what the ministers are trying to articulate. And the argument of the book is that part of the reason why Americans go to church during a crisis is because they are trying to answer more existential questions. And that's part of the civic education because often the crisis crises that I've examined here is because in some way um, state power has failed, the government has failed, right? Like, and you see that especially say when um, John F. Kennedy is assassinated, right? The kind of feeling is like, who are we? You know, are we with these barbarians? Like there's some kind of colonialist discourse, like we are, you know, banana republic, we're assassinating our own leaders. What's going on? How do we let this happen? And I think ministers, um, try to step into that gap and offer then theological solace or reassurance as a way to understand, you know, who we are as Americans. Okay. That does makes that sense. That make sense. It does. <laughs> yep. No, that does. And I think it'll be, I think it will be surprising to our listeners to, to hear that, but also probably as it does with me resonate a bit, makes sense. Um, also in the introduction, uh, you write that much of what you track is the seeding of power from the church to the state. Can you elaborate just a little bit, at least enough to lay the groundwork for our listeners? Because I think this is also surprising. Um, I think in some ways it is uh, the story that many church, American church historians are going to tell, right? Like the, the kind of loss of church authority over the last 100 years, you know, the kind of influence, the turning to the church as an institution for understanding. And I was interested in 
how did the church struggle to kind of hold on to its authority or where were the moments when it seemed to concede? And I think the arc of the book says that as the church, as articulated through the sermons, started to adopt more secular models, um, therapeutic models, right? Um, uh, policy articulations, using the pulpit to make recommendations for how the state should behave, even if they are in alignment with theological or religious beliefs, it was um, a concession. And it ended up, I argue, that we basically have the mourner in chief, that most of the work, theological and otherwise, that the church would do during a crisis has now been appropriated by the state. Right, they use the vocabulary, it's our civil religion. Um, and um, it's a frustration for me because part of the argument of the book too is that the role of the church in its civic education is really democratic, small d. It's a counter voice, it's another way to think, it's another way to live, it's a contestation of what counts sometimes as common sense. And if the church in an, in a, an ambition to actually have influence starts to use the vernacular of the state itself, we lose that democratic voice, right? So it's not so much that an argument that we need to be making religious arguments, though I think that as well, but that we lose something vital to democracy when this voice now is just an echo um, of what you would expect, you know, a, a political leader to say. Right, okay. Well, that, We'll have to sit with that a little bit, and I think our listeners will too. But let, we'll we'll meet up with some of these. Fortunately, and, they're not going to be calling in right now. Like, right, right, right. <laughs> but but I think we'll see some of this in, in the stories you tell. So let's let's move into some of the details here. So first, Pearl Harbor, um, as you said earlier, that was the first one you looked at. That was your first paper, and it's the first chapter in the book. Um, but before we get to some of the details you share, can you tell? us about the proposed November 1941 Freedom Day sermon sent out by FDR's Civilian Defense League, the resulting national outcry, and what this signifies. Right, this is um, such an interesting story, right? So it's um, the head of the Civil Defense League then is uh, Mayor LaGuardia, right? So anyone from the Eastern Seaboard, you know, knows that name. And it became mocked as the canned sermon. So the ambition was to try to recruit um, primarily Protestant ministers to support FDR in his growing sense that the United States was going to have to enter the war. Um, ministers, Protestant ministers, Catholic priests as well, um, many of the kind of religious classes had supported World War I and thought that it, it was the war to end all wars. And when that clearly was not the case, there was this feeling of betrayal and lots of interwar, very interesting um, thinking about how did ministers to themselves and about themselves, how do we make this mistake? How we're never going to support another war. We have, you know, this, uh, we, we believe too much in the power of the government and so forth. So um, FDR, the church has enormous power at this point. And so he thinks, well, let's like write a sermon that shows that the ambition, the purpose of the war of, of this conflict is to protect religious freedom. And so this canned sermon is an attempt to, you know, retell the founding story um, and to remind, I think, ministers, and they want them to then remind their congregants that if the United States does go to war, it's to protect 
religious freedom for others around the world because tyrants don't allow religious freedom. And ministers, Protestant ministers, as you would expect, went berserk. First, not because so much of the content, but the idea that the state was going to tell them what to preach. It, it was patronizing. It violated for everyone that accepted code of church and state. It was public and humiliating then, like send out hundreds, if not thousands of this quote unquote canned sermon and expect ministers of every denomination to preach it. Um, and so that was really, it became a joke. And, uh, you know, none of them preached it, though some of them said, you know, the content wasn't so bad. It is true <laughs> that democracy right. does protect yeah. religious freedom. And, you know, we know this from Tocqueville, right? Um, right? But don't you dare tell us. And especially it showed a kind of ignorance about liturgical calendars and how ministers think of their sermons like that, you know, for the faithful, a sermon isn't something that's like dictated to you by a secular source, right? You've been praying all week, you've been reading biblical passages, and then you create this sermon, so. Do you think FDR knew about this? He was a, you know, I, good Episcopalian. It seems I like it violates his understanding. I mean, there's not, like the New York Times ran the text of this because the, uh, of the sermon, you know, um, an almost full, you know, slightly redacted version. I think that, you know, that FDR probably was aware, but probably hadn't read the sermon. I think, um, and maybe he would have, um, he would have called them back a little bit, but you know, I mean, he did write letters and we have those two Catholic bishops asking for their, you know, support when he did declare war, like privately, not in this public way, but right, right. saying, you know, will you help? Okay, good, good piece of history to know. All right. So after Pearl Harbor, Reverend E. Stanley Jones preached, quote, I did not have one code of morals on Saturday the 6th and another code on Sunday the 7th of December. What Christ meant to me on Saturday, he meant to me Sunday, close quote. Tell us some things that stand out from the Pearl Harbor sermons you studied. Um, I think what stands out is that um, they are not nationalist. There's no, um, you know, kind of hoorah for America. There is really a long sense of history of that this conflict is political. This is not God punishing America. This is, doesn't raise questions of theodicy. That, right for the ministers after Pearl Harbor, the questions that will animate so many 9-11 sermons are just not there. They are very clear, like this is a political problem. It was brought about by political decisions and God isn't really a part of this. Um, mm -hmm which sounds like a way of being very secular, but instead they were like, no, we understand that, you know, what it means to be a Christian doesn't really have anything to do with these political decisions. So I think that's a really striking difference that many of us today would be surprised by, right? Like that there wasn't this um, support right away for, the, for uh, an American perspective. Right. I was surprised when I read that, definitely. 
Um, any anything else? Any other highlights? Um, I think another um, interesting feature is that it is only during World War II that more and more ministers start to go to divinity schools or seminaries. And in fact, it is the cultivation of military chaplains that facilitates that education. So many of the sermons that Americans would have heard after Pearl Harbor would have been those that uh, prominent, well-known, well-educated ministers wrote. And then those were kind of riffed off of by other ministers in their denomination. So there were periodicals like the pulpit that published some of the like, you know, greatest hits on whatever this week's liturgy is. And then ministers would use those. Um, so in that way, in this period, there was a bit more coherence in terms of what you would have anticipated many Americans would have heard from the pulpits in those first weeks after Pearl Harbor. Whereas, you know, much later as like sermon.com or any of the archives that you can look at for 9-11, while I, you know, read several hundred of them and tried to see the ways that there were themes, um, you're not going to have that there was this like repetition of the same places in the Bible being exegeted and so forth. You're going to have right. a greater array of things that okay. ministers are going to have available to them. Okay. You, you also uh, move into, which I thought was really helpful to understand, how Japanese American ministers reacted to the war, especially the looming internment. Uh, and I'm going to quote one Japanese American minister from your book, quote, he said, quote, give God a chance. So we are bound to God by this tie of Christian love. Let us give God a chance to reveal his will for us and to work in us and through us, close quote. Melissa, what did you find in reading and processing the sermons of Japanese American ministers during World War II? Um, these were so powerful and poignant because the ministers unlike the ones that I just told you about kind of white mainstream Protestants, these sought to explain the interment as a, a request, demand from God to be part of the democratic process in America, which is completely counterintuitive. To, and I, I'm very um, excited that with the help of research librarians that I found this, this, these sermons because they're, you know, very difficult and it's the genius of research librarians. But to imagine that you stand in front of your congregation knowing they're about to be interned. So most of these sermons are two, three weeks before the internment and say to them, don't be angry. This is God calling you to help make America more democratic. You are like going into exile in order to show Americans what it means to be a faithful Christian. Um, and so when later historians think about why was, you know, why was there not more civil unrest? Why did Japanese Americans not? Um, there are many reasons and there was some civil unrest and dispute, but certainly part of it was a narrative that said, this is what it means to be a good Christian and to actually discount or disprove the accusation that you are a spy or disloyal or a traitor. If you go as, um, as one of the Christian faithful, then Americans will trust you. Even though you are an American, you're a Japanese American, right? Like these are, um, you know, many of them are citizens um, or naturalized citizens. So I found uh, those very profound. Yes, I, I think that thread that you pull uh, 
uh, on the American religious tapestry is a very, very um, profound one that we as listeners uh, are just going to have to sit with for a little while. Okay, so let's leave World War II um, and move to JFK's assassination on November 22nd, 1963. You quote Associated Press religion writer George Cornell, quote, it was almost as if the whole people bowed their head and America for a time became a church, close quote. Can you tell us, Melissa, about your finding that many sermons, quote, compare JFK's death to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, close quote. What does this signify? What happened here? So the first part was that many ministers noted, like, as soon as the announcement of Kennedy's death, so many things were canceled, right? Broadway, no more shows, no more movies, you know, even Ruby cancels his strip club is closed, right? Baseball games, all of these things. And many ministers reflect that um, Kennedy's death has reminded Americans of what their priority should be, that all this kind of frivolity and consumption is now halted. And that's part of what that quotation is meant to suggest that we um, gather around instead, I, the, the altar of the television, right? So for those days of the memorial, that's what Americans are doing, right? They're watching, they're collectively around their televisions reflecting. The elevation of JFK um, to this Christ-like figure is I think the way that the ministers who um, really take on that they are, that they have failed to create a Christian um, culture, that there's all this television violence and, you know, where were the people who should have mentored Oswald? You know, he was quote unquote, sort of one of us, right? There's an ambivalence, like he is one of us, he's not quite one of us, but uh, especially the Baptist ministers are trying to figure out like, how come no one caught this man? How come no one brought him to church? How come no one, and much of the, um, I guess the lament is the church has failed. And in that owning of the church has failed, there's a kind of deification of JFK, like to say, like we are in this position because like um, the, the crucifixion of Jesus with the unfaithful, right? Like with the, um, you know, the, the unbelievers, they don't do the anti-Semitism quite uh, in the 60s in these sermons, but this sense of like, it is disbelief that crucifies um, Jesus. Similarly, it's our own disbelief that has led to the crucifixion of JFK. I also mentioned that, and many others have written about this. And, um, you know, if you ask my mother, she could tell you, you know, the also that um, Jackie Kennedy was brilliant at orchestrating the story about the assassination, right? Like she manage this because she wanted to ensure that the story of the assassination um, not only brought um, kind of glory to the United States, but glory to her assassinated husband and to Camelot. I mean, he wasn't, I mean, this sounds terrible now, but he wasn't as popular when he was alive as he was after he was assassinated, right? He wasn't perceived as a great civil rights president until, you know, he was, thinking about it. He, you know, I mean, he had a kind of grudging acceptance. His brother 
this is not the most supportive of the civil rights movement, but once he's assassinated and it's Johnson who uses that platform. So um, this is one of those times when you see the morning creating a, a literally a, a civic education for Americans, both because you Americans, every one of you who's you know consumed with frivolity and violent, you helped to kill um, Kennedy and um, in order for us to be great, right? This is post-World War II, America's trying to prove that it deserves and has earned the status that it has accumulated post-World War II, right? Like it is not the hegemonic power that it will become just yet. It is on the ascendancy. And so the assassination is a challenge to that. Like, do we deserve this? What has happened? And the, the minister's answer is, we don't deserve it if we're not really good Christians. And this is a kind of reminder that the petty violence, this is what will be our undoing. The Wall Street Journal hates this, for example. The Wall Street Journal is like, this is crazy argument. For the, the, and, like, and so, which is interesting that the Wall Street Journal is taking this on, suggesting that it is such a dominant narrative that even the Wall Street Journal feels like it needs to have an op-ed saying, we did not kill Kennedy. This person, Oswald killed Kennedy, you know, we're fine. We're good. We're good Americans. Like don't get all, you know, critical of American culture because of this terrible, terrible thing. Okay. Well, there's <laughs> with all of these stories, there's so much we could talk about that I think would be helpful to our listeners, but let's, let's move to not away from JFK's assassination just yet, but to the black religious leader leaders reaction to his death. Um, how, tell us how they reacted compared to their white counterparts and what that meant. Well, I don't, I don't have as many sermons by black ministers. Um, so at the JFK library, there are over 800 sermons that were preserved, right? Cause he was president and um, there isn't a kind of cataloging by race. Um, so I have a much smaller N and one of the first things that, um, is striking is how grateful the ministers are that it wasn't a black man who killed him. And in these sermons, um, when they talk about that, there's just this relief of like, you know, not, not glad that Oswald did it, but just glad that it wasn't a black man, um, which I think is sort of, I found that surprising, right? That so many ministers, that was one of the things that they were worried about. Um, but they are um, part of the deification of Kennedy because um, claiming him as a civil rights leader, of course, advances civil rights and racial equity. Um, and so there's no real hesitancy of also claiming um, him uh, as a Christ-like figure, though the black ministers are more likely to talk about structures than individual sinfulness, right? So white ministers, the remedy is gonna be, do you know your neighbor? You know, make sure that you are generous, you know, work at your church soup kitchen. Whereas black ministers are going to think that this kind of violence, which black men have been suffering as long as there is historical memory, um, isn't just about, you know, um, being civil or polite, this is about structural racism. Though they're not really making that argument in these sermons, they're of course going to make it after King is assassinated. 
Well, let's move um, to the King assassination. Before we do, let's let me just uh, interrupt here and, and do a plug for the for the museum and what we're doing here tonight. We are talking with Melissa Mathis, professor of government at the United States Coast Guard Academy and author of When Sorrow Comes, The Power of Sermons from Pearl Harbor to Black Lives Matter. Join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by donating at nmar.org forward slash contribute, where you can receive a free signed copy of Dr. Mathis's book for a donation of $200 or more. Now, Melissa, let's move into the, the chapter that you uh, entitle Existential Despair, which are the sermons or the study of the sermons reacting to the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King. I thought your comparing and contrasting of religious leaders' sermons after the Kennedy and King assassinations, very enlightening, very helpful. Can you share those briefly with our listeners? Um, so, um, one of the first things um, that I that you notice, and I talk about this in the book, is just even the um, condolence cards. The condolence cards rehearse the difference in the way that King and Kennedy are gonna be mourned. So Kennedy, we, Americans mourn him like my husband, like my brother, like, right. And King is mourned as a loss to the black community. More difficult for his death to be read as um, something that affects all Americans and that we would all, that there would be some kind of universal grief. Um, and when, uh, when Kennedy is assassinated, right, the ministers have the sense that his death, like Christ's, is redemptive, right? Like that now we are called to do something because he's been assassinated. Whereas when King is assassinated, it is interpreted by both the white and black community. And then the rioting certainly suggests that the dream is over, right? Like that King's death doesn't then propel more nonviolent protest or is it not the fulfillment of the dream? It's the, this is the end. And even the ministers and I, these are the most, um, I don't know what the quite the right word is, I guess despairing sermons of probably any of them because they are sermons with titles like, does God exist? Can God die? Um, God is sick with the church. And these are mostly black ministers who think I, like there's nothing. And this phrase that many of the listeners will be for, familiar with, if you kill the Prince of Peace, right? If that's what white racism does is kill the Prince of Peace, then there's no place for religious leaders in American politics. Cause you couldn't have had a more faithful, more, um, accommodating, intelligent, loving man um, than Dr. Martin Luther King. And if even he can't succeed in the political arena, we're done. And that's mo that I think I would interpret this as the place where there's like a break in terms of thinking about the role of uh, a certain kind of civic education around religion and political life. Um, that this is a time when we see the retreat of like, we can't do this. Like we ministers, like there's no place for us here. We're going to go back. We're going to do what we do well. And um, which is, you know, stay in our churches um, with our congregations and we'll do things locally. 
And in fact, when I, um, I sent out about 150 uh, requests for sermons from ministers of this period, you know, I was able with the help of a um, research assistant, try to find, you know, what Paris, you know, what congregations were active and who was the minister at the time that King was assassinated and so forth. And I didn't get very many back. And I'd say of the half that I got back, I got back what I just said, which was, here's all you need to know about what happened after King was assassinated. I was done with politics. I thought it was ill-conceived and misconceived that I ever preached about justice or racism from the pulpit. I'm never doing it again. Um, I got one that told me that my whole project was misconceived, that I didn't understand that the place and the role of a pulpit was to just do theology and that King's assassination was the proof of that. You know, here was a minister doing political work and even he was not successful. It's a really painful, um, and we know that, you know, that, that, that there's going to be changes 30 years later, right? Like, uh, you know, not even 30 years. Um, Jimmy Carter's gonna get elected, evangelicals are going to, think about the political space as a way to um, advance religious ideas and commitments. Uh, but the, it's going to take longer for the Black church to do that. And a, I, I think even to this day, a kind of hesitancy that um, maybe this isn't the right way. Maybe the, you know, this isn't the place or the way for the Black church to have significant political influence. So now, were you talking about the Black church or American church writ large. Um, I was mostly this. talking like those sermons that I just was describing, those were by African-American ministers. Right. The, white ministers didn't think that the assassination of King was uh, about theodicy, was about, um, you know, it was sinfulness. It was the sin of the assassin. Um, and they didn't even think really, there's not a lot of argument that the assassination of King tells us very much about American culture. It, it tells us about the civil rights movement. It tells us about, you know, this criminal criminality of um, these, these rogue people who assassinate King. And then there's all the conspiracies. I think the white ministers are, King's not that popular either, like Kennedy when he's assassinated. And um, he's not as successful in managing the nonviolence, right? So, um, when he does go um, to uh, Memphis, he can't, his kind of authority is not sufficient to ensure that everyone will be nonviolent in the ways that 10 years earlier, he could ensure that. Right? He had such a commanding presence and so much support that there really wasn't violence when King would show up for a, for a nonviolent protest. But now there's starting to be this unraveling, there's starting to be more violence. And some, uh, both black and white ministers, there is a thread that tries to um, say, you know, it's disrespectful, these riots after King is assassinated, it's disrespectful, it's not the way to mourn him. Look at Coretta, look how she's mourning King and she has the most reason to be grieving violently. If there was a person who could legitimately be furious and, you know, um, you know, throw her grenade and say like, get revenge, it would be Coretta. And, but she doesn't do that, right? She's very composed and elegant and 
um, you know, we don't see her fall apart in public. And so some both black and white ministers say, you know, try like Kennedy, right, to say like, this is, they're modeling how we should behave, like, but predominantly, as we know, right, that's, this is the place where the black power movement, um, James Baldwin writes um, so powerfully about the devastation and months of despair that he has after King is assassinated, like just not so much from a religious perspective, but just the crater that it left in the black community, even though James Baldwin and uh, Martin Luther King disagreed, right? And, you know, weren't um, exactly simpatico about everything, but his assassination really configures how black thinkers, leaders, everyday people are gonna imagine what's possible. And I, I did not know that there was such a, reaction from the african-american clergy of of saying the dream is over not offering their people any sort of political religious hope it was it was leaving politics calling that despairing for the church to be involved and then moving back into just what they do best from the pulpit for, as far as just preaching the word to use you know a, a, a phrase right so that's that's instructive i think to, for us uh, and, and I, sorry. Go ahead. There's a lot that we could, we could do a whole episode or a whole right, series on right. the, obviously and, of these events. Absolutely. And I think there's a, um, I don't know if it's like a PhD or a project for someone, if we could collect and publish those condolence letters, they're not collected. Um, they're in Atlanta at the King Center. And I am, um, I think I read almost all of them that are there, but it is chilling to read letter, condolence letters by African-American men and women sent to Coretta that are like, we always knew this was gonna happen. What are you gonna do next? Like, you know, we, uh, who, who do you think should be the new president? Who's gonna lead the movement? Here's $5. Like not, like not the, the like, of course he was gonna be killed. Like, wh why is anyone right. surprised? We're not really like, we knew this was happening. So now what do we do? Um, and I say this in the book is, um, so school children also, you know, um, African-American um, school children wrote condolence letters and they are remarkable because in contrast to these other ones that are like, of course this happened, they're, they're we're so sorry, you know, are you okay, Miss King? Don't worry, you know, um, the Reverend is in heaven, right? Like they they are the only condolence letters that seem to actually mourn the loss of king as opposed to feel like of course this happened you know this is racist america you know like well wow. it's terrible this is also instructive to know for our current time period all right uh, because of time we're gonna have to leave this uh this event um sadly there's much to learn and move on to the early 90s. Uh, Melissa, share with us a summary of the 1991 Latasha Harlan's murder, the 1991 Rodney King beating, and the 1992 Los Angeles riots, just to bring our listeners up to speed before we talk about the sermons addressing these events. Uh, so Latisha Harlan's is a 15-year-old African-American in Los Angeles who goes into a Korean grocery after school with a backpack on to buy an orange juice. Mm. And she has the orange juice in her hand and the um, 
grocer doesn't believe that she's going to pay for it. And they have some um, kind of, you know, verbal exchange and Letitia throws the orange juice back at the grocer, just kind of flings it. And this, this video, from my perspective, unfortunately, you can watch it. Um, and Letitia turns and the female grocer shoots her in the back of the head and she dies instantly. Um, and this happens and then the Rodney King beating and the video happens, um, which I'm sure most of the listeners know that story. Um, it is a chilling story for, I think like when I teach this in my college classrooms and you know, our students you know, don't know this story, they are always shocked because they sometimes in their imagination think, well, Black Lives Matter is the first time we've really talked about these things or seen this. And then they learn about Rodney King and the video and the beating. And, um, and, um, and then in response to the not guilty verdict, there's the rioting in LA. Uh, so I try in this chapter that's, um, I needed this chapter, obviously, in part because it resonates so well, on, you know, with contemporary issues. Um, it could, this chapter probably could be its own book, right? Because there's so many things that are happening in this period. And um, part of the argument is that there are two LAs. There's the Los Angeles where everyone knows the story of Letitia Harlins. And then there's the LA where no one knows her name. And during the riots, when both Latinx and um, African-Americans are destroying um, property and looting, there is inscriptions of her name. Um, and, uh, you know, people shouting, this is for you, Letitia, right? Like, and that part of the story gets buried as I think, because, you know, so I think, we want it to be neater, like, or the media needed it to be like a neater story, right? Like this, you know, there's only one conflict going on here as opposed to, no, there's actually multiple conflicts going on here. You know, mm -hmm. there's the relationship between the Korean American community and the black community and the Latino community in Los Angeles. And that is all, you know, has its own strife and conflict. And, and then there's the class issues in, in, in Los Angeles. And obviously there's the police brutality. Okay. All right, <laughs> I know probably here. Now the listeners are like, what? <laughs> it's no, too no. Much. I don't think, I, I think most listeners have heard Rodney King, but probably not Latasha Harlins, right? Her name. Um, but you've painted the picture here, what's going on in the city. Uh, so now let's move to um, religious reactions. After quoting what you call the most prominent of the sermons given by Reverend John MacArthur, pastor of the Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, you write that he, quote, equated policy authority or police authority with God's authority. The police were alleged to be doing God's work. It is a vast difference from the sermons of 1941, 1963, and even 1968, close quote. Melissa, can you tell us what these differences were and their significance? Why do you, why do you talk about this? Um, I think that um, now when we talk about um, first responders, this is one of the 
places. Um, it's going to be more pronounced after the Oklahoma bombing. But here we begin to see who are the agents of God? Who are the people in American culture who are doing quote unquote God's work? And it's surprising or it was surprising to me that police officers are perceived as doing God's work. Um, so in the ways that in the Kennedy um, sermons, all of us are responsible, all of us by watching violent television, et cetera, et cetera, um, we're either fulfilling God's promise or not. But now it's the agents of law and order who are more closely aligned with doing God's work. And it's a different, it's a very different conception of God too, right? Like that um, when we get to 9-11, I call it the celestial army, that these are the people that have been uh, God's ambassadors that are doing this work. Um, so it's a, it's a very different conception of what a Christian community looks like, right? It's not King's beloved community. This is a community in which there's strife and conflict and, and God is trying to restore order. Um, now it is true that there's strife and conflict. It's just surprising that the, that the vehicles for that are um, ministers of the state. And, and maybe I glossed over this too quickly. Can you just tell us um, what are what were the reactions from the preachers in LA or, or throughout the country? What, what are some of the reactions, maybe the, the most uh, frequent uh, reaction from clergy to what happened in LA in 1992? So the first um, part, and I don't know that I have a good answer to this, is this is um, not a crisis in the way that the Oklahoma bombing, right? So Americans don't pour into churches across the country because of the verdict of um, the police, the LAPD, right? Or so this um, crisis is more um, one of, I argue, kind of like a paradigm crisis, like of trying to understand, like of, um, and so it doesn't affect the whole country. Like, yes, the whole country is watching, but we, we don't mourn it. In fact, there is no like memorial to the LA race riots. And only this year, January of 2021, is there um, now a mural for Letitia Harland, I think inspired in part because of the murder of George Floyd. Um, so the Los Angeles ministers, um, they, they really try to give sermons of reconciliation. Right? Like they think the, the, our community, we have to, we have to try to bring it back together. Like how, right. you know, what's going to happen to us. And um, there are ministers who ask people to bring to the churches, the things that they have taken, right. To, to demonstrate that, um, you know, that they were rioting and um, destroying property because of their grief, not because they are thieves. And um, they do collect, but you know it's like immaterial. But there is this kind of demonstration of like this is how we're going to have reconciliation. Um, I think the other thing that these ministers do, and it is, um, is they they do try to work together and they form a league to try to then work with the city of Los Angeles to get money to rebuild. Um, it's ultimately not successful. It lasts for seven, eight months, and then it kind of falls apart. Um, and I think part of the, what 
or what the ministers know, but the, but the rest of the kind of country doesn't, is this isn't really as much about race as it is about class. So when, um, you know, Dan Rather goes, he, he wants this to only be about race. Now, it certainly is about race with the Rodney King beating and the LAPD, but the, the looting and the burning of LA is not just about race. It's also, and the ministers try to bring that in, try to recognize that, you know, what is it like to live proximate to this enormous wealth of Hollywood and celebrities, be, but be, you know, foundationally excluded from it. How, how, what is, what about that? And I think to this day, right, we have a hard time talking about issues around class and the ministers try. And again, there's just a small collection. I don't have hundreds of sermons, you know, I have lots to, to say, and, you know, the book has many footnotes about like how the media represented it and what was, you know, what was the kind of national conversation, not so much about what ministers were saying. Right. Okay. Okay. Very helpful. Um, let's see, let's move on. Uh, to this question, you use the, the, the title or the phrase, the church of the national tragedy. What do you mean by this? Uh, was a quite a heavy title. <laughs> Maybe give us a, a, a quick explanation of where that came from. And then we have lots of more questions um, going into 9-11 and then after that, so. Right. Um, so the church of the national tragedy is my argument in this chapter is that this is when ministers really start to use the therapeutic model to explain crisis and mourning, right? It's all, it's, you know, Philip Reef talks about this change in um, the pastoral from theological to therapeutic. And these sermons really demonstrate that, you know, that psychologists are going to advise ministers um, how they should help their congregations mourn. And ministers seem open to that, right? Like, okay, tell us, you know, how we can, how we can do this. And so the Church of the National Tragedy is also um, meant to talk about that um, what unites America in this moment is shared suffering of being a victim. And, um, which is of course true, right? Like these are innocent victims. Um, but it sets up the possibility in 9-11 then to deny American power, right? So it's, a, it's you know, what do we have in common? We have in common that we suffer, that, we, um, that we're victims. And that's a really different conception than what we've seen before say after uh, Pearl Harbor or JFK of like, well, what are we gonna do to fix it? Or, you know, how do we manage this? How does the church, um, you know, become involved to make things better, to make, you know, America more Christian or what's the relationship between democracy and Christianity? Or how do we reach out to, um, you know, our Muslim brothers? Here it's, you know, the best we can do is to suffer this. And that's, that's what it means to be a Christian is to suffer. And of course, that is part of the Christian narrative. It's just the, um, really the first time that we see that be the national dialogue is the, you know, the okay. ministerial dialogue. And this, this church of the national tragedy, uh, that phrase, what you just described came out of nine 11. Is that right? No, no it, no, com it I think what? it comes out. I think it starts here with the, um, 
Oklahoma City bombing. Okay. Right um, and then, yes, that concept is probably fulfilled in 9-11, but... Um, That's right. Right. In this way yeah. that, you know, when you're trying to figure out, like, what's the genesis of this? Like, did it, you know, where else? And especially because right after the bombing, many Americans, newscasters, you know, thought that the Muslims had, um, that this was a, right, a Muslim terrorist attack. And so... I remember that. I remember that. So it's a chilling preview and then we see the response and then we learn of course that it's not and then it has some of the resonance with oswald you know is this is timothy mcveigh us not us how is he us did we okay but not the the ministers don't say we failed because we have timothy mcveigh um they are really not interested even though we know who you know who did this very quickly the ministers aren't really interested in him um, as much as they are interested in talking about our suffering. This is right. This is the only question I have about that Oklahoma City bombing chapter. Uh, we could spend a lot of time there. I, I think this is really, really helpful for our listeners in just the whole span of U.S. history to see some of these points and what how the church reacts and what that maybe means the church and the state have become in their relationship. So very, very helpful, Melissa. Uh, I'm going to move on to 9-11 just because of time um, and how American religious leaders responded. First, you write, quote, American clergy were unexpectedly hurled into the maelstrom, close quote. Uh, can you share maybe just one anecdote uh, of, of what you mean here that this supports what you mean here, that they were thrown into this maelstrom? Um, I think that many ministers tell the story of not of not knowing how to do this work of mourning on such a scale, right? Um, and they they haven't thought about this in terms of, okay, you know, like especially in New York, the ministers describe like walking into their churches that have had 50, 60, you know, congregants, and now there's 300, 400 people and they have, they're overwhelmed and terrified like just as any of us would be like, what am I supposed to do? This is beyond, I'm like trying to understand it myself. And now I have to stand in front of these, all these people. They don't have the, what the Pearl Harbor ministers seem to have is more of a political and historical education. Um, so they feel kind of caught off guard, right? I mean, there's this expression that, you know, in America, we learn our history war by war. So now, you know, ministers who may or may not know very much about Islam or terrorism or like are being asked to explicate like, you know, um, yeah. and and so some of them say, I'm just going to use the whatever's in the liturgy. I'm going to preach it because that God must have wanted, you know, me to use that. And then others are like, this is so overwhelming. I have no idea. I'm just going to tell the story of where I was and what I thought when I heard the news. And that does become a very common, you know, I was doing this and then I heard this and this is what I thought. And um, that creates the bond, right? The, the shared memory, where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? Where were you when you heard about the towers? So. Okay. All right, well, that's helpful. Um, of the sermons, you explained, quote, that one of the most striking features of the majority of these sermons is how easily the events of September 11, 2001, were theologized. That is, how readily the events were interpreted 
by American clergy as indicating something transcendental, as gesturing toward a universal and sacred truth, close quote. Tell us more here, Melissa, including how the response differed from that of Pearl Harbor, with which 9-11 is most often compared. So these sermons are really clear that 9-11 is God communicating with the United States. Most of them do not think that God is punishing us, but that he is engaging us um, as Americans to, to triumph. And so everything from the burning buildings to the fuselage becomes like some Old Testament apocalyptic um, wrath of God, but we're on the side of God, which is, it takes a little doing to see that, but we're, God is on our side because this, this cosmic evil other, um, even as they are not anti-Muslim, but these are the forces of evil. And um, God is calling us as Americans to make his will triumphant. And it, and this is true sort of surprisingly for both conservative to liberal, however we're gonna denominate that, but like across the spectrum. I mean, even Jesse Jackson gives a sermon um, declaring, you know, God is on our side. That's what this is. That's what 9-11 is about. It's, it's to re-energize, you know, we don't have this language, but it's to make America great again. That's what this 9-11, and that's why, um, that's why this is happening. And God is with us right here. Um, and we see that God is with us <clears throat> in the beautiful heroics of the first responders. We saw it in, um, the, in Oklahoma City, that you know, in the, in the mayhem, in the violence, there are these really good people, and it is on prominent display in 9-11, and that's God's work, right? Like, that's the reminder. Here you can feel the presence of God. And that part is quite beautiful, but it has this, for me, still this very jingoist element to it, right? I mean, the ministers do not do really anything to thwart the desire for uh, violent um, uh, you know, violent revenge or violent, you know, retribution, right? Like they are not part of that. They, if anything, they help to confirm what the narrative is for the Bush administration. And I would have thought that there would have been more resistance to that because you probably also remember that in those first weeks after 9-11, the world really did mourn with us, right? But then once we kind of, awoke back to, you know, our full kind of dominant power, the world kind of looked like, are you sure? Like maybe, you know, right? Like, so we were getting, I think, some feedback that the Christian way might have been actually the smartest, most powerful political way. And the ministers didn't offer that, right? Like the possibilities of reconciliation might've actually fulfilled the anticipatory triumph of the American project not the like God's on our side and we are his celestial army and, you know, we're fighting the forces of evil, but that's not the, the route that, that we took, obviously. Okay. I know I'm showing you my pacifist side, like that's the divinity school. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> could we have tried something? <laughs> well, I, I think you're just sort of telling us what you found, right? <laughs> what you found. Uh, okay. Concluding your chapter on 
And again, like with all others, we could spend a lot of time on 9-11. There needs to be an episode in this podcast series about 9-11, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, You write, quote, in the crisis sermons of 9-11, the denouement of church power was nearly complete, close quote. This is circling back to the thing we talked about at the very beginning, this thread that you identify throughout the whole book. What do you mean here, Melissa, and why is it important for our listeners? What I mean is that um, in the 9-11 sermons, the ministers seem to concede that God needs America to fulfill his will, right? As opposed to either America needs God in order to achieve her greatness, um, but God has been, um, he's not so magisterial or transcendent he doesn't seem to have very many demands or expectations of Americans in ways that in the other periods that we've talked about, um, ministers are articulating. It's more that God is so clearly on our side that he is using all the instruments of the state to fulfill his purposes. And to me, this is the kind of denouement of Reinhold Niebuhr, right? Like, Niebuhr thought the best way for the church to have power is to try to be practical, to try to, you know, have dirty hands, to get involved in the practicalities of everyday political life. But once the church does that, there's nothing transcendent or special or different about the church's Weltanschauung, its commitments, right? It's the same as the political one. Um, Now, that's not what Reinhold Niebuhr thought was going to happen, but part of the argument of my book is that's what does happen, is that in a bid to try to hang on to ministerial theological authority, the church, through in part through these sermons, concedes so much that then you don't need the church anymore because it's the civil religion of the state. So President Obama can give just as powerful a sermon as any minister, and many people are just as happy to have him do it as have anyone else, which doesn't mean that he's not a brilliant speaker and that we might not think that what he says is profound and important, but it means, I argue, that it's a loss of an important and powerful democratic voice, which was the way that the church would counter and resist and say there's another way not that we have the truth and you should all follow it you know because we have revelation not i'm not arguing well we need the kind of authoritarianism or dictatorial perspective of the church but what we have lost and this is part of carl barth's point is that sense of the magisterial and the transcendent that the church could offer to counter for carl barth hitler's sense that there's this inevitability to what the what the bureaucratic state wants. It's logical, it's rational, it's efficient, it fulfills um, what is what the state is supposed to be. Um, we are in nowhere near those circumstances, but that has been part of what Tocqueville celebrated. Like it's like, this is what makes American democracy great, is because there's all these religious voices and Americans are religious as a counter to um, the state power that you might have seen in Europe and particularly for Tocqueville in France. So. Okay. <laughs> You're like, how did you get to Tocqueville through all that? <laughs> no, no, I see it. I, I can, I can see you connecting the dots and it, it's a brilliant um, research and analysis and presentation that I think uh, will benefit our listeners. Absolutely. Uh, in your chapter, the enduring American crisis sermons from the Newton shooting to black lives matter. 
and you touched on a little bit of this with your um, mentioning Obama's uh, sermon, sermon, perhaps you were thinking of his one in South Carolina. You incisively, yes, Melissa, explained that, quote, long gone were the days when President Roosevelt would seek the validation, perhaps even the permission of religious leaders for state decisions, including his own momentous decision for taking the nation to war. Now the president unabashedly preached explicitly and without apology, assuming the role and authority of the church, close quote. Now you've, you've told us about, you filled in that statement I just read from your book. Is there anything else you want to mention before we uh, move on to the, the school shooting in Newton? No, I mean, I think that when we talk about that, some of this will come up again. So I don't Yeah. Okay. And I know we're running long too. So not long enough for me, but definitely for our <laughs> listeners. Okay. Um, can you describe the three broad categories of sermons given after 20 children and six adults were killed at the elementary school in Newton, Connecticut on December 14, 2012, and what they meant to the nation that mourned? Um, so I argue that there's first there's the, um, the sermons that are really just um, reiterations or different versions of what President Obama said at, in Newtown when he did the memorial. They refer to it, they amplify it, or they, and that um, is surprising, right? Because President Obama is not a biblical text. He's, he's the president. So to use him as your liturgy is surprising. Um, the second were really about gun control. And, um, I know I, uh, one of the reviewers of the book said, well, that he was rightfully glad that ministers were using that platform to talk about gun control. Um, and I think many of us would be glad after the shooting to have our ministers engage in a conversation about, you know, what, what is an appropriate um, relationship to guns and how, you know, what might be the Christian perspective on managing um, our guns, but what the sermons feel like is just policy talks, right? Like that anyone could give them. And some of them are, you know, more persuasive than others, but they don't feel, I didn't think like they were particularly homiletic. And then the third ones are about mourning and they focus. And in fact, you know, I live in Connecticut, like the Hartford Current, um, reprinted many of the sermons across the state, many of them were about what do we do about Christmas? Like how, how do we celebrate Christmas because this tragedy has happened weeks before Christmas and to children. And Christmas is about children and buying presents and, and um, many of the answers are we have to get over it. We have to move on. We have to believe in the light. We're gonna light the fourth candle of Advent and that's what we have is the light and there and this may be unfair because I, I didn't have to preach in these devastating circumstances um, but there's an urgency to get over the morning right like there's sermons of like okay okay like but Christ is going to be born so you know we got to be okay we got to be okay and I think you know part of the theological tradition of mourning is that the Holy Saturday is an entire day in the Christian tradition. You have to live through and be in that space of uncertainty. And 
I think I say in the book that there's this kind of urgency to get from Good Friday to the resurrection. And I think there are important psychological, theological, political reasons to be okay when something as devastating as the Newtown shootings to um, have um, Christian Americans, maybe all Americans sit with it, you know? So then maybe we would make good decisions about what gun policy would be instead of the, you know, the sound bites that we've been rehearsing since forever. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you write that after crises, quote, white Protestants looked for political remedies and black Protestants looked to God to help them through, close quote, which signals, quote, that black Protestants have a conception of God who intervenes to fulfill his will more regularly in daily life. This is a God who is more than prepared to fulfill his purposes with our with or without the state, close quote. How is this borne out in sermon? So now we're moving quickly and probably right. inappropriately from such a tender subject as Newton, the Newton's school shootings, um, which we could talk about for a long time and the sermons uh, that uh, reacted to it, but we do need to move on. Um, tell us about this, the, the, the difference between white Protestants and black Protestants and, and um, how they see God. Right. I think this is, um, um, I think um, chapter six should be another book. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be the one to write it or not, but I think that the kinds of issues that chapter six brings up about um, looking at contemporary conceptions of God in the black church and the white Protestant church, which these are big categories, which Right. I don't think are that helpful unless we're talking about a crisis again, right? Like to try to make big claims like the black church, but what, you know, what is that? Right. Um, but part of, there's some research that sociologists have been doing in the Pew, um, you know, with, um, you know, in kind of surveys looks to um, what is the conception of God and how has it changed? And one of the things they, that many of these studies find is that, um, the black church doesn't trust the state quite as much as the white church does to fix things and believes more that God will answer prayers um, and is more interventionist into our daily lives. The, um, and there's, I think the reason, you know, I think it's unclear, like, well, why do people believe that? What, well, you know, is it, um, you know, part of white privilege that we believe that the institutions will work for us. And so um, we can get the help we need when we need it. And um, African-Americans don't believe in those institutions and therefore, you know, feel more dependent on um, divine intervention to get the solace or the help that they need. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't think we, I don't know the answers to that. And I think, um, you know, it's worth trying to think about because one of the less developed threads of the book, but certainly something I was interested in is these changing conceptions of God, you know, which kind of, which comes from like Jack Miles book, you know, God, a biography. And he traces the way, tries to think of God as a quote unquote character, say in the old Testament and how 
what does he remember? What does he forget? What seems to make him angry? Why doesn't he say certain things at certain times? Or what does he say? And he and Jack Miles, it's a brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning book, um, tries to detail. And I think thinking again about well, what is our conception of God in 2021 in America? And is it racially inflected? Um, does it have class? You know, what, what do we imagine when we think of God as quote unquote, uh, as a character, an anthropological yeah. Um, figure? Yeah. Well, we look forward to that book. <laughs> I hope somebody will read it. You know? That's, that's, uh, that's heavy. That's pregnant with meaning. All that that we just that you just barely talked about, but but important for Americans, I think, to me and, and the listeners to uh, contemplate. Absolutely. I'd like to end, Melissa, by getting your short analysis on the sermons after George Floyd's death in 2020. This is very much in the American psyche still, mm-hmm. even with the pandemic hanging on that occupies much of our worry. I think there's still uh, is still there. Uh, and heavy with us. What can you tell us about um, the sermons? So, um, maybe it's sermon, too hard to summarize and it, 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 ten minutes. I, but give us some highlights, or I don't know. Give us a um, taste. So I think that um, the sermons after George Floyd did um, rehearse the national narrative around race, right? Where either all lives matter, right? Like, you know, that the goal is don't see race. We are colorblind society, be judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. So there were sermons that, and this was true, I think after Trayvon Martin was killed as well, that was this uh, about race? Was it about injustice? Was this about, the specifics of this particular incident. And so there are sermons that then try to exegete, you know, what exactly happened when George Floyd is killed. And then there are sermons that I think do the, that, um, and these were clearly divided into kind of conservative and liberal that are part of the white supremacy, white privilege, that's what the, that's how we understand um, the, the murder of George Floyd not so much about mourning like you know and what we would mourn and who we would mourn do we mourn for the loss of american reconciliation right like that we're so divided right there's not sermons like that after george floyd is killed do we mourn? like what are we mourning do we mourn george floyd i think there was ambivalence quite frankly about mourning him that um, he didn't, he's not deified by ministers. Um, Sharpton does, right? Sharpton reads him as, you know, or eulogizes him as a, um, as a prophetic figure sent by God to, rest- you know, to restore African-American faith in the American project that, you know, seeing all of the um, diversity of people who protested and marched after George Floyd was killed, that is clearly inspirational. I, there, um, I think now you're probably hearing like, I'm not that optimistic about the possibilities for transformation after George Floyd's murder. I don't know what- pulpits. Right, from pulpits, and, or actually even in the way we, as a national culture, are talking about issues of race. 
And for me, I think what has been lost is the aspirational. Um, I, mm -hmm. I don't, right, I, 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 we have a really good analysis of all the things that are wrong, but not really a vision for what it would mean to create the beloved community is one of my you know, most uh, prized concepts, obviously from Dr. King, who mm -hmm. really thought about what it would look like. And that's the work I, I hope that our ministers can help us do is help us to imagine what would it look like? What would it feel like to belong, to care, to have each other's uh, backs, literally, metaphorically, you know, how, how as right. Christians could we do that? And is it too simple to say that maybe that's because the church has ceded so much power to the state? It's lost its transcendent. Right. The, that's and, what you would say. By, analysis, by analyzing these sermons, this is sort of what you would say. Yeah. But, you know, when I was teaching a graduate seminar um, in divinity school, you know, the hope is always this next generation of ministers, right? Like that this experience of Black Lives Matter and this racial violence will be foundational to their thinking, we hope, when they, right? And I certainly try to encourage them not to just use the pulpit as a place to talk about policy, but to use the pulpit to inspire people to want to create the community that we want to live in. Yeah. Well, Melissa, uh, as we conclude, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of important historical transformations you are charting or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment in the American narrative? I ask that having heard you give many <laughs> lessons or takeaways of historical transformations and helping us better understand, but is there anything in finality you want to say that you haven't, uh, this is your time to do that. Right. My friends will be, will say like, she's always on her soapbox. Of course, the whole thing has been one long, you know, Melissa soapbox. Um, no, it's not a Melissa soapbox. <laughs> it's a research and analysis that you've done that you're offering up to it, to, to us. So, um, I, I, it probably feels counterintuitive to say this after having written a very long book on, um, you know, violence and death and mourning. Um, I guess the hope is that the book actually inspires more than defeats, right? Because in the nuances of the book, in every chapter, we do see, um, and I try to, you know, pull these out, and maybe I haven't talked about them enough in this hour, but we see the ministers who are brilliantly struggling to reclaim the authority of the church, who are making these theological arguments, who do inspire. And I think that the book is both an object lesson, like this, this path will not either preserve the American project or fulfill the promise of um, the beloved community, but it also can show us the ways that it is still possible to do that work. And that I hope is what, you know, especially young ministers feel like empowered as opposed to thinking I should just, you know, church and state, the wall is so high or so thick. I shouldn't, shouldn't engage in these, but that there's ways to engage and be influential that don't violate religious freedom. Um, but that do contribute to a robust democratic conversation. Okay, you have the final word. We have been talking with Melissa Mathis, professor of government at the United States Coast Guard Academy and author of When Sorrow Comes, The Power of Sermons from Pearl Harbor to Black Lives Matter. 
join us in building the digital first National Museum of American Religion by donating at nmar.org forward slash contribute, where you can receive a free signed copy of her book for a a donation of $200 or more. Our time together today has helped me and I think all of our listeners better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including seeing how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its future. I guess religious freedom being the freedom that fuels and fueled sermons after or during crises. Melissa, absolutely wonderful. Thank you for being with us and doing the really, really hard work, as only you would know, of writing a book that helps us all understand America's religious soul and the freedom that fuels it. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. I have. Thank you so much for inviting me. It really has been a great pleasure and honor to do this with you. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.